Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the prologue to episode four of Broken Laws podcast on what is a fairly momentous and historic day. Would you not agree, Dr. Jackson? I would indeed agree, Dr. Hines. We have to stop doing this Edwardian. Would you not agree, Dr. Jackson? I would indeed agree, Dr. Hines. Yes, Lewin. It's the day that we all thought, we all knew was coming, but we all thought would never come. It's the day that Jürgen Grobler, who's been here forever, has stepped down from his seat as head coach of British rowing. Essentially, he leaves behind one of the most glittering careers in Olympic school. I think you would have to say that as a high performance coach, there will be other contenders, but it would be hard, you'd be hard picked to find somebody who has such a sustained record of success and delivering success. He's been absolutely exceptional. He has been a platform that British rowing has built upon and he has been an excellent steward of British rowing's Olympic ambitions. And indeed, and bizarrely enough, much as we'd like to claim some kind of immense insight, wisdom or prescience to this, we have, for your delectation, a podcast discussing essentially Jürgen's greatest hits, the five Coxless Fours victories from 2000 to 2016 over five olympiads 20 years of work essentially please enjoy um and this is this is the day for it really we can't claim that we knew that this was coming i think that jürgen and i have, have, have asked the question what happens after the gold rush we certainly ask it in the in the podcast it will be a question going forward as to whether we can uh in british rowing sustain the success that we've enjoyed under jürgen's guardianship but we recorded this because we wanted to look at those successes, which happened under Jürgen's stewardship. And it wasn't prescient. We didn't know that he was going. But it seems really pertinent now to look back and enjoy the body of work that he and the athletes under his care have put together. Thank you very much. Enjoy the next hour and ten minutes. Oh, God, that was loud. That microphone's pokey. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode four of the Broken Oars podcast with my esteemed co-host, Dr. Aaron Jackson, a man for whom the kidney ward has been replaced by the cellulitis ward as he again is joining us in a rather compromised state due to the number of painkillers he has been taking due to his immensely accident-prone running career. Thank you, uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hines. Uh, yes, I went out to test the broken toe that I have on my right foot and rolled my ankle on my left foot, which then got bigger, ended up at the QE in Newcastle, and I am completely off my face on painkillers. So this should be a very, very interesting um, discussion. Our discussion today, which is all about the best of the five Coxless Four wins between 2000 and 2016. We are Broken Oz. We are the podcast that was started for rowers who think it was all so much better back in the day. And this is a, which was the best Coxless Four men's heavyweight final of the last two decades is a fitting subject for us to talk about. We, we do have some pretensions of grandeur, but this is mainly due to our guests who have been absolutely fantastic so far. 
please, if you haven't already and you're listening to this, go and check out uh, episode three with Di Binley, who was absolutely brilliant. And we have just had a chat with Terence Chipchase, who is a man who we spent the best part of two hours chatting to. We've edited it down somewhat to give you just the highlights, but we learned solidly for two hours. Terence was absolutely fantastic. I learned so much. We probably need to do a little bit of housekeeping, whereby we point out that possibly, even though we claim to be the first, the original and the best rowing podcast, we are in fact full of shit. Yes. So essentially, to sum it up in a nutshell, we can only carry on with our pathetic claim to be the original and best rowing podcast if we also consistently and freely carry on pointing out that we aren't at all. Aaron? Yes? What does pathetic mean? No idea. I believe it's a classical idea from the ancients, possibly Greeks, could be Romans, and I think it has something to do with baths. I think the ancient Greeks may have invented the idea of the bath culture, but it's more... You know, the bath, the bathhouse, the I, bath culture, I, but you think that, it's Romans, that, that don't was, you? That was Roman. That, that, you that sure was the Romans. Romans? Possibly okay. San Franciscans, but, you know, never mind. Okay. Can we, can we throw it out to our listeners? Because we have Hypatia, who follows us on Twitter, and she is a proper classicist, and she also agrees with me that York Head is a brilliant head. If you're listening, Hypatia, mm, if you yeah, make it to episode four... Could you maybe tweet us and let us know if it was the ancient Greeks who invented kind of the, the whole bath culture thing, or if it was indeed the Romans? Either way, we are ancients. We are both pathetic and squeaky clean. That's, that's pathetic with a but, not pathetic with a puh. Any other housekeeping? We're trying to introduce like a few sort of phrases and catchphrases. We were the first to ask the question, was Sir Steve Redgrave carved out of granite by Viking stonemasons and set loose in a boat to wreak vengeance on an ungrateful world? And of course, the only possible answer to that is yes, of course he was. I mean, why would you think anything different? Um, what else? We've also asked the question, the very serious question, a question that may inform the future of British rowing. Um, as Matthew Pinson can trace his lineage directly back to God, the question remains, is God Matthew Pinson social superior or inferior? And how does God feel about that when he meets Matthew Pinson? I, mean, he's in I imagine Matthew Pinson can probably tell us how God feels about it though. Yeah, I, well, possibly. He's never coming on now, is he? I can feel it. I can feel it in my water. <laughs> it leads to the next question that we have asked, and we are the first and original podcast that has asked this. Very important question. It's athlete, it's athlete performance related. If God and Matthew Pinson go into a revolving door together, who comes out first? James Franklin. But this is only because Matthew Pinson left him because having to beat him was all too much bother. So God and Matthew go into a revolving door and James Cracknell comes out first because Matthew lets him win. Yeah, and God finds himself on the street outside in the rain. Speaking of James Cracknell, Dr. Hines, um, we were the first to raise the implications of the policy of James Cracknell, making sure that no James Cracknell was left behind. Essentially, it's very clear that sort of like, whilst we on this podcast have, you know, a profound policy of making sure that the less well-known names of British international rowing are preserved and brought to the memory of um, people's attention and brought to the foreground. James Cracknell has a very, very clear policy of making sure that the name of James Cracknell is brought to people's memory and the foreground. And if people think we are teasing legends, legends on the Mount Rushmore of rowing, legends who deserve to be there, unlike perhaps certain current incumbent American presidents, 
when we actually get into discussing these races, we are talking about Oz men that we completely respect who uh, operate at a, at a level that, well, I could only dream of. You were a lot closer to them in terms of physical output. It, it's, it's very much. The, these are legends of the sport who we totally and absolutely respect. Have we any anything else to mention in housekeeping? We did we did ask the question, I believe, if a single skull crashes in the Irwell, does he make a sound? The Irwell being the river that runs through Manchester that made Engels invent communism. Okay, yeah, I, I can actually I can answer this question because I okay. have crashed. And the sound I made was about a week later, retching into a bathtub while being pinned to the toilet with the shit. It was quite unpleasant. I, I have I have something of the dubious honour of managing to capsize on every single river I've ever trained on, except the Irwell was the only one that made me properly sick. Frankly, the only thing that was as bad as that in my rowing career was uh, when I left a protein shake that was ready mixed with water in it in my bag on a hot summer's day for about 24 hours. And then I still drank it because, you know, back then I was quite poor and I didn't want to throw away like 40 P's worth of protein shakes. And I regretted that greatly for about 10 days. On both occasions, um, the, the bottom dropped out of your world and the world dropped out of your bottom, uh, um, to put it in. Absolutely. In. Yeah, it was grim. Yeah. It was horrible. So, so which leads which leads us into our final point. Um, we've made some claims about Temple Island recently, which is, you know, which is another river that Loon has crashed on, um, and it turns out that Temple Island is now suing us uh, for claiming that it is a danger to shipping and rowing, and it never holds its racing line. Would you like um, to go into that, or are you, are you not allowed to legally, Loon? Uh, I, I see this as pure lawfare. Temple Island doesn't have a case, and uh, the court will show this. And I will say that I will stand by you right up until the moment the judge sentences you and locks you away. I am there for you completely. In, indeed. Um, Temple Island is a menace to shipping. Moves around all over the place. Drunk indeed. So that's our housekeeping. We have invented catchphrases and we've introduced concepts to the world of rowing that we're going to put on T-shirts. So if you hear John Inverdale saying them, he's stolen them. That's basically where we're going with this. What? No, no James Cracknell left behind. No James um, Cracknell left behind. <laughs> like that one. Um, yes. So let's move on to our main topic. Well, what is it? It's this. Britain has won gold in the men's heavyweight Cox's Fours final for the last five Olympiads. That is 20 years of success. We are going to now debate which of those five successes was the best. Well, the reason we're putting the criteria in place is because otherwise Loon and I will basically listen to each other's point of view and then automatically take the opposite perspective because it's just simply more fun to argue that black is white and white is black just because. So we're going to argue through each win in turn, yes? We're going to give yeah. background, we're going to give context, we're going to say why it was important and we're going to take you through the race and say why it was absolutely brilliant. Also, maybe why it wasn't as brilliant as all that. For nearly all of these performances, you can go back and you can say, that wasn't as good as it could have been because all of them were good enough. All the mm. people we're talking about are gold medalists. And we are. And they're all bigger and stronger and better rows than we could ever imagine being. Yes. But what we're looking for here is the best row. So the contenders are... 
Redgrave's Last Stand, which we've also trademarked because we're the only people we've heard um, using that phrase at the Sydney Olympics. Uh, we have Wither Canada, which was the... Or, as I prefer, Canucks Ahoy. I really like Canucks Ahoy, yes. I've no idea what a Canuck is. I think I ate one once and I, was, I had an upset tummy for a while, but I you could be do. wrong. Yeah, uh, Athens um, Olympics. The Aussies' best ever 1,700 metres in an Olympic final. It was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. The, the guys who were in that boat, they were the... F- they had bounced down. So I think the pair ate... And then it was the fall. And, and so they really kind of bounced down quite a long way. And then okay. they were in the lead with 350 metres to go in and the was, Olympic final and rowing like gods. It was a beautiful row. London Calling, which is basically the London 2012 Olympic Coxes Fours final. And then finally, her name is Rio and she pulls a mighty oar. If you don't know who Duran Duran is, you are not going to get that reference. But we are talking about the Coxless Four final in Rio, which Britain also won. Five wins, 20 years of dominance. Let's kick off with Redgrave's last stand. Why was this brilliant, Lewin? Let us count the ways. Well, first of all, Steve Redgrave is, he's our greatest ever Olympian, uh, apart from Chris and Bradley. Um, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa. Slow down okay. there, Tex. Okay. Actually, well, yeah, okay. <sighs> I, this is one of the great things about being a Ryan fan. It's like the achievements have not yet been tarnished by any scandal. You know, possibly unwise podcasts aside. But, yeah, it was... E- even then, if you look at what Chris Hoy and Bradley Wiggins, who both have more medals and more gold medals than Steve Redgrave it wasn't over the same sweep of history. He was going, he, he was doing this for 20 odd years, basically. He was going yeah. for a fifth gold medal in five Olympic games. That is 16 years of solid international rowing training. And then all the stuff he'd done to get into that position before that, you know, he, he didn't just start training in 1984 and he he underwent kind of like the the full trials of hercules to do it he got the colitis and he keeps going he got the diabetes and it keeps going he was standing on a swiss ball in the gym and matthew pinson threw a medicine ball at him and he fell over and he broke his arm and he keep going and yes matthew that is what happened according to rory ross he got hit by all of those things. He also hit James Cracknell, allegedly, in a game of water polo, earning the undying envy admiration of Matthew Pinson, who had up until that point called Sir Steve Redgrave grandpa when he wasn't looking. But this is a man who kept going. I mean, this is one of the reasons I went into the sport. The sheer unyielding nature. You know, in most things in life, we live in a culture now where it's an, it's an easy win, it's an app, it's a, it's a tap of a button, it's a click, it's on a screen. He actually, he worked his, he worked his ass off for those goals. He, he actually rode on his overdraft and with the support of his, of his wife until after Atlanta. This is Britain's most successful Olympian at that point. And he was rowing on an overdraft. Why? Because he wanted to be the best in the world and that was all that mattered. Um, other British male rowers have pursued that. And to be honest, they haven't made it. It underlines the magnitude of the, of the achievement. Here he was. He started young and he kept going past all sensible points. 
And not only that, he won. One of the reasons why Sydney was also so fantastic was because we had the Gold Fever documentary and that showcased rowing to the wider public for the first time. And what a showcase and what personalities came out of that. We've got Tim Fosser, you know, Mm. the the hand injury. And, you know, he he was there getting his hand sewn back together. And he asked the surgeon, when will I be able to play piano again? And I go, about six months. Well, that's great. I've never played it before. I, I, I go into a minor decline when I get a twinge in my lower back, but you know, he had operations. Pinsent comes out of that whole thing as, as somewhat invulnerable and somewhat rowing within himself. But the truth is, he was as nervous as the rest of them. He was, you know, prepared to absolutely go down the hole. It also, as a documentary, it revealed to the world what James Cracknell had always known. It revealed how wonderful James Cracknell is. We tend to gently tease about James Cracknell and and, and these icons of the sport. In a sport defined by how much pain you can take and keep going, with a coach whose record of success stretches back to before your hosts were born, James Cracknell, according to Jürgen, had a capacity for pain beyond anything he'd ever seen in his rowing career. The way that documentary was put together, the the compelling personalities, you have Redgrave, who did look like he was carved from granite and was invulnerable. You had Matthew, who was just so, so outwardly confident. You had Tim, who had this reputation as being a superb technician and, and was and apparently brought the flow and the feel to the boat, which really did him a disservice. You know, he, he won his seat on merit. And you had James, who was prepared to row himself into the ground after missing out in Barcelona, after missing out in Atlanta, to make that boat. You know, they wanted it so badly. They wanted it so badly. And then the build-up, they lost in Lucerne. Redgrave and Pinsent, who never lose, who never lose. And they didn't just lose. It was a bad loss in Lucerne. Tim went back to focusing on the technique and the flow because he felt that it, it, it had been lost. The fantastic four men in the boat book talks about their responses. James Cracknell did what James Cracknell does, which is train harder. Uh, Steve Redgrave apparently dialed up the grumpiness and Matthew went on a diet, which is in, significant in the yeah, final analysis. Matthew went on a diet because he wanted to look better than James Cracknell. On the podium. Which is, which is a physical impossibility, because let's be honest, we tease about James, but he's incredibly fit. I'm just saying, I'm saying as a heterosexual man, I can appreciate beauty when I see it. That's all yeah. I'm saying. But they, I the winning mark, only be, you only hate him because if, if your wife had a choice between you and James Cracknell, I mean, she loves you very much. However, she would be leaving. James Cracknell and you is know, James Cracknell, yeah. James Cracknell is James Cracknell. That's just the reality yeah. of it. And then we come to the race. We have this wonderful narrative drama that the documentary has put up. We have this wonderful lead up. We have Redgrave's fifth. We have Matthew's um, third. We have James and Tim desperate to finally race at the Olympics and to, and to win that gold. We have millions for the first time in this country watching the sport of rowing. The focus was on rowing and what a race it was. What a race. It was, it, it was an absolutely great race. But at the same time, it was, it was not straightforward. Th- there is discrepancy in the autobiographies, as there so often is. And it's one of the most fun things about reading A Lifetime in a Race and Four Men in a Boat by Matthew mm. Vincent and Tim Foster and Rory Ross, respectively, that 
There are points where opinions differ. If you look at Matthew Pinson, he said they were never coming back to us. They'd left it too late. They didn't have what it take. Yeah. If you looked at Tim Foster, he was saying the Italians felt like they were attached to us by an elastic band. We'd pull away from them and they just spring back towards us. And, you know, the first thousand meters went according to pan. It was like old school Redgrave and Pinson rowing. It was, they went out hard and they had a lead on everyone by, and it was a solid lead by about eight, 900 meters. And at that point in the Olympic final, Pinson and Redgrave would just sit on everyone. And some people, you know, probably the French would try and come back on them in the last 500 metres, and it wouldn't work. It would be too little, too late. But it wasn't really like that. Nobody was having it. They, it I, I don't know if the other crews in that race just felt like they wanted to mess up what was meant to be the narrative. Yeah, the but, victory lap. My God, the last 500 metres, you know, even 20 years after the day, it's not comfortable watching. It's not and, comfortable watching because the Italians came and they came hard and they kept coming and they kept coming. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't as though they put in a sprint, oh, but they were a bit too early and, you know, yeah, they, they were gaining on us for 250, but we, you know, we, we just pushed them away in the last hundred. That's not what happened. What happened was they almost, if they'd have had, I don't know how long it would have taken them to, I don't know if it was another 50 meters or another 30 meters, but by the end, it just felt like it was skin of your teeth stuff. You know, for a crew that had been a length ahead of the field, with, I don't know, with, with like a thousand meters to go, they were less than a canvas ahead by the end of it. And it looked yeah. like they were dying, if I'm honest. Um, it did. It did. And th- this is a question I wanted to ask because Matthew, said, Matthew and Steve both say we had an extra gear if we needed it. Tim is on record of saying, I wish they told me about this extra gear because we did need it. You, you obviously, my ERG score compared to yours is that, you know, your, your output is much closer to an elite level athlete than, than mine is. I, it was one, at, yeah. But. At 1700 meters in a 2K test or a 2K race, you know, an age croft rated pretty high. We'd go, you know, 46, 48 off the start, push down to 38, and we could maybe go back up to 42 or 44 in the last 500 meters. Um, that didn't give us an extra meter a second. That was just us hanging on to whatever speed we had. That that wasn't like kicking in the turbo boost and away we go. Do elite do elite athletes have that turbo boost? Is that the difference between someone like me and someone like them? Because it wasn't apparent watching that race. It looked like the line came when we needed it to. And yes, they they they'd done all the work, and yes, they put themselves in the position to win it. But the 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 Italians 
were constantly chipping, 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 coming, coming, coming. And the famous line, Matthew goes one last time. It's, it's on the line. You know, it's, it's not a huge, it's not a huge margin of victory. Yeah. I mean, I, I do, I think it all comes down to how hard have you worked in the previous 1700? I mean, it's, it's one of the interesting things about rowing. You can definitely win a race from behind by, you know, doing exactly what the Italians did, which is push and push again and put until somebody breaks. Yeah. And they, they literally didn't have quite enough pushes, but, you know, for me, this is one of the things that if I look at one of, at the great Coxless Fours victory, obviously that was the one that cemented, you know, rowing in the imagination of the British people as, you know, yeah. this is our Olympic sport. Um, I think arguably Atlanta, their victory in Atlanta was more important because that was just before the lottery funding was set up. And we were yep. the only people, or no, rowers were the only people to wave the gold medal around at that point. Yep. So they got the first chunk of funding in. Um, but in ter- but it was it was desperate stuff by the end. Yes. And you don't you don't, the narrative wasn't meant to include desperate stuff. It was meant to be a romp. It was meant to be a coronation, and yeah. it wasn't really. It was a hard-fought win. It was a hard, hard-fought win. It was a hard-fought win. It was glorious, and they did still win. They did still win, and that's the thing. The impact of that race on British rowing and British sport simply can't be calculated. It raised the profile. It made stars of those four rowers in a way that hasn't been accomplished before or since. It got people into the sport, myself included. I went down to Agecroft literally the next morning. It got Redgrave as fifth. It got Matthew his third. It got James and Tim their their first. And the other thing that we that you know we're, we're picking apart a level of performance that neither Lou nor I could could possibly aspire to. Um, but it was that rarest thing in sports. It was a fairy tale ending. Redgrave got his fifth and went off into the sunset as a national treasure. And it was one of the great Olympic moments. People came back from the night out at the pub or their night out and they tuned in to watch it. The viewing figures were massive. It was, it was a wonderful race and it started the legacy that we, that we're now talking about for the next four Olympiads. I, I, I would just like to say one thing. Um, and this is a very important thing in that again, it, it's about the unsung heroes. Not only did Britain's men in Sydney win, their eights race as well as mm. the four and this they is did. incredibly important but this was the first time that we won a medal for women's rowing okay we had the quadruple skull of Gwyn Batten, Miriam Batten, Kath Granger, Gillian Lindsay pulled it out of the bag and got the silver Every medal counted there. And again, it's this idea. Gwyn Batten, Miriam Batten, Kath Granger, Gillian Lindsay, please remember their names because they stood up for the sport at a time where there weren't millions of pounds sloshing around when it was all on a little bit of a shoestring 
when you know people were still having to sell t-shirts to follow their Olympic dreams. And they did it and they brought home the bacon. And, yeah. and let's just let's just remember those those guys. We should remember that and we should should remember it and we should applaud them because it set up it set up what happened next it set up the legacy and it was it was done by people pushing hard and doing extraordinary things that maybe tend to get lost a bit in the narrative of british rowing as it's become moving on moving on to athens and canucks ahoy and you know why was this such a brilliant win because it was so damn close because right up until the line you know, it, people weren't coming back and think, oh, this is going to be tight, but, you know, they're still ahead. This No, right up until the line, this was uncertain. And this was absolutely hammer and tongs, nip and tuck. This was as close as a rowing race gets, nail-biting, edge-of-the-seat stuff. You know, there was a whole echelon of boats coming up behind those two boats and they were almost at overlap while these guys were just rowing each other into into the ground and just trying to find something that would give them an inch per stroke and in the end it was the british boat that did it this wasn't everything is fine for 1700 and oh my god they're coming back i think what's forgotten is that Canada took it to the British right from the start and there wasn't a point in the race when it wasn't a knife fight, where it wasn't brutal and bloody and and just compelling from start to finish. The British came back and then the Canadians came back and it was brutal, brutal stuff. And the context of going into that race is so important because what happens after Sydney Pinson and Cracknell head into the pair in, in the same way that Andy Holmes and Steve Redgrave had headed into the pair after the Los Angeles games, presumably on the grounds that two names fit into a broadsheet banner headline more easily than four. And it's something they wanted to try. And boy, did they try their early success. Double goals at the Worlds in Coxless and Cox pairs. Wonderful performances. I mean, that, setting that, a pairs that almost record. Became, that became the gold standard. It really. did. For small boats, can you yeah. do two... Small boats, and, and, it, and it's become Cox and Cox's pairs. Can you win it in the same day? And Yeah, and they did. Gold standard. And they did, and they did it brilliantly. And they set a pairs record, which you will know this better than I, I believe stood until um, other Antipodeans eventually came to the, claim the Kiwi it. Bo- the Kiwi pair came and took it, not in the final of 2012, but... Um, they, I believe they took it in one of the heats in 2012. They absolutely, yeah. they clearly went through it and they killed themselves in the last 500. Yeah. And then the, the Aussies, the Aussies come back and they, they give uh, James and Matthew, you know, a hard, uh, well, let's, it, it was a bit of a hammering. I think Matthew admits that in his book, they head back into the four. Now, previously in Olympic cycles, the British boats are pretty much set, you know, largely because it's been based around what Sir Steve wanted to do. I'm going to do a pair, so we'll build on the pair for four years. This was the, this was the time when you have people coming into the boat and going out of the boat with injury. James cracks a rib. You have Ed Cood coming in. I believe Alex Partridge was in at one point, and Ed Alex, Alex was injured Partridge out. Alex Partridge was uh, injured out, a man upon whom... Others have stood on their shoulders. 
Um, yes. And I, I, think it, I think it's fair to say that his contribution to British rowing outside of that once every four years jamboree has been immense. I mean, he, he's, he, I think he's something like a quadruple world champion, you know, and, and, and not enough people remember his name. Um, and also, okay, I mean, th- this is kind of like where I, 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 I start to look at the whole story of Athens, which is this incredible race. And yeah. it is, it's an absolutely kind of Corinthian spectacle as a race. But when I kind of look at it, it's just like looking back, the shine starts to come off the GB project but it's something much more purposeful, you know, business-like than After it was Athens. in 2000. Yeah. Or, yeah. or in the run-up. And, you know, in the run-up, yeah. You talk about this hammering by the Aus- Australians. They had a bad day. And in, by some analysis, this was, they got hammered by the Australians. And then Matthew just kind of said... I don't row unless I'm rowing for gold. And then, then there were a lot, you know, there's a lot of other rumors and I've heard James Cracknell talk about this and he talks about how he didn't spend enough time working hard enough to connect with Matthew Pinson and find out, you know, find a way of making Matthew feel how important things were for him the brave and the courageous thing to do would be for Pinson Cracknell to turn around, to come back, to make it right and stay in the pair and let the already established four have their shot at gold. That's not what happened. It wasn't necessarily their decision. And the decision that was made, and I think the, the results from... Rick Dunn and Toby Garbett, they, they, were, they were pushed out into the pair and they, they didn't make the pair's final. Um, Alex Partridge was injured out and I don't, you know, at best we were looking at two silvers because I don't think the four as it stood, stood a chance of beating that Canadian boat, which I think was immense. It was an immense machine, that boat. That- that wouldn't have been Matthew and James's decision. That would have been Jürgen's, surely, because his, his job is, is to bring home a goal. So I, I, I did, the, would Matthew... For, for me, Sydney was about glory. It was, mm. about, it was about a narrative. It was about going for the dream. Athens was... It was business. It, it was, was business. It was, it, was a, it was a factory. It was making the right decision and it was the right decision i don't think anybody would have necessarily got the gold if they'd done anything differently Mm. but it showed up vulnerabilities that the goal for the documentary and and like the flawed human character was tim foster but what this whole affair kind of looking back on it with hindsight and hearing some things that so the biggest vulnerability in that squad is that Matthew Pinson and James Cracknell, two of the greatest British athletes who ever pulled an oar, couldn't really find it within themselves to work together. And to it didn't click. It, it didn't yeah. click in the pair. 
Yeah, but I mean, it, it's like it didn't click. I mean, even Matthew Pinson has, has written in his biography that it's an athlete's, it's a rower's job to find a way to get on with their crewmate. And Do you think that's, I mean, the thing in the aftermath that struck me was that the idea that Matthew had heaved the boat across the line through sheer force of will, which I think underplays Steve Williams, you know, doesn't get enough credit. Ed Cood, we've given props to, and James, you know, there are four people in that boat. And obviously we remember Matthew's tears and we remember this cool calm exterior finally cracking under the immense pressure that he must have been, he must have been under. Is there not an argument to say that because they were essentially a scratch crew who didn't have four years to groove it in, and this Canadian crew was, as you say, it was superb. It was a Spracklin style of rowing. It was a hard catch. It was a sit back on it, and they pounded into the British from the line. Is there not an argument to say that they still managed to find a way to win even with a scratch crew, essentially? There is is an argument, but I I still feel that in terms of legacy, in terms of, and very much we're talking about narrative and emotional legacy. For me, it's something of, you know, I'm very much reminded of, who's the guy? Highly rapid Jamaican bloke. Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. And, and, and he had some god-awful season coming into the World Championships, World Athletic Championships once. And then, you know, and he, he'd only just got selected and he just, he was talking about forgetting how to run and stuff like that. And then he got to the final and he blew everyone away and he turned around and he said, I know what my business is and my business is winning major championships. And it seemed like at Athens, Jürgen knew what his business was and his business was winning gold, but it was a business. It was not. It was not this ideal, perfect world of sport. It wasn't a Corinthian Redgrave's last stand effort. So you're, you're basically, if, if I've got you right, the courageous thing to do would have been for um, Matt Pinson and James Cracknell to go for the glory, stay in the pair, let the four have the shot at the gold. Mm-hmm. Jürgen made the right decision, the pragmatic one, swapping two silvers for a gold. Absolutely. But it came at a cost. It, it came at a cost. Alex Partridge, Rick Dunn and Toby Garbutt didn't get that Olympic tick that they wanted and a real shot at the medal. And it showed yeah. maybe the vulnerability of the GB setup. Yeah, I, I, I think that it showed that the, these guys are incredibly special athletes, but it showed that there was nothing special within the realms of the very special people who go to the Olympics in rowing boats. Um, they could be beaten. There were equally special people out there you know, the air, the aura of invulnerability, you know, it, it's kind of a hindsight thing. You know, I absolutely loved Athens, watching Athens yeah. at the time. And I just thought it was absolutely magical. But looking back and looking back at the, the chopping and changing of the boats up until that point, and it was just, it, it, do, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the shine. The Redgrave's last stand was the legacy was this was this not the best row, but the best race because it was compelling, and we didn't know who'd won until a long time after they'd hit, hit the finish line. It, that ha- that hammer and tongs brutality. I can't think of another race that had that. The Italians came close in in, in the Sydney final, but, but the, yeah, there there was always a seat to yeah. You know, there was it was the best race. Um, yeah, I mean, well, in terms of drama and in, compelling, ter- in, ter- in, ter- in terms of compelling drama, it was the best race. 
let's move on to Beijing and what we have both described as Australia's best 700 meters in, I'll slur those words again, I'm on very strong medication, the Australian's best 1700 meters in an Olympic final. Lewin, why was this a brilliant row by the British men's Coxless Four and indeed other competitors? So tell us why this was, this was a wonderful, wonderful event. Okay, so first of all, this was the new generation. This was a this was finally a break from the past. No one in that boat had rode a competitive Olympic race with Steve Redgrave, um, and it also seemed to be showing that we had a pipeline of talent. We had, you know, new rowing stars who were both the physical caliber and the technical caliber that the guys had done before, but also had a greater kind of professionalism uh, and ability to put the, the crew first who had learned from the mistakes of Athens and the run up to Athens. And it was just, it was going so well, basically, um, you know, right from as soon as they shut the door on Athens and the 2005, um, season kicked off the British Coppola sport was there and was absolutely hammering it and you know first of all we had Andy Triggs Hogg and possibly possibly there will be great debate about this but I think that what he was in his time the greatest ever stroke man and greatest ever stroke cider that we've put in a boat um, you know, yes, I, I fully recognize what that says about Matthew Pinson and, you know, and number of medals, etc. but I'm, I'm prepared to stand by that. And I th- I, okay. I, I mean, I would, I'm sure Matthew Pinson would disagree because if you're that level of athlete, you naturally tend to think that you're very, very good at what you do. So he'd defend his record, but you know, I can't remember which book it, it's in, but someone says that you would never teach a stroke man to row the same way as Matthew does. His knees are together. He reaches around the outside of his legs. There's a, there's a, there's a bit of a lurch out for the length at, at the end. And then there's a huge heave of the shoulders coming through. And then if you look at Andy Trigg Hodge, it's poetry. I mean, it is. it's, it's poetry. It's beautifully flowing. The placement is superb. The flow is just glorious. It's, it, I mean, I would, he would never row with me because I'm nowhere near his level. And, uh, well, uh, that's, would, that's not what people have been saying about ATH. He, he is apparently, he's a very kind of humble, self-effacing guy. And, you know, he, he is the kind of guy who might turn up to your rowing club and go, oh, go on, then I'll jump in a boat. I would um, love I would love to sit at seven or at three behind him. I think it would be glorious. I think it would be just just like the best seat in the house. Yeah. I, I loved I loved watching him stroke a boat. And as and as much as there were these like constant ridiculous complaints about Pete Reed and just saying he was just an erg monster and not not a rower, it you know, he was de- every bit Andy Triggs Hogg's equal. He, he yeah. was there, he was sat there, and he matched him stroke for stroke in the four, in the pair. He was there. Um, Steve Williams was there. He, he was the last, he, he was kind of like the connecting bridge back to Athens and back to the ancient regime. Um, and, you know, he was, 
as self-effacing as he always was. And then you had this, this new guy, Tom James, who it seemed was the new technical wizard um, that used to be Tim Foster. And it was brilliant. It was, it was a great boat. Again, Alex Partridge, 2005, 2006, 2007, world champion. He, you know, he was, he was out-competed in that boat um, by Tom James. Tom James stepped up and beat him to it. Um, and so it wasn't some sort of dodgy juggling or anything around. Um, you know, he suffered the misfortune, but he still went to the Olympics. He was in the British eight. He got a silver medal. He played his part. It was, it was a much more wholesome process. Yes, there was no kind of last-minute juggling or parachuting. Um, yeah. You had an essentially stable crew for for pretty much the whole Olympiad. You had Andy Trigg Hodge, we've mentioned. Pete Reed, I think, suffers a little bit because, you know, Matthew's famous nine-litre um, lung span. Is, is there such a thing as a lung span? Anyway, he had a nine-litre lung span. Pete Reed beat him with a nine and a half liter lung span, and people go, oh, "Well, he's just a, he's just an erg monster. He's just he, he looks like he's rowing at half slide." Yes, because he is a giant of a man. He's huge. That's why he looks like he's rowing at, at, at half slide. The same way that people used to say, "Oh, James Cracknell, you know, he's just an erg monster. He's just a big beast." It's the other people in the boat. He was rowing on a level that that most of us can only dream of, and the same can be said about Pete. And having chatted to Pete occasionally, he's a really really nice guy. He's a really really nice guy. Tom James came in, he won his seat fair and square. And Steve Williams, as Jürgen calls him, the speedy man, keeping it light and quick in the bows, keeping the boat feeling light and moving, very quiet, very self-effacing, didn't, you know, didn't make a big splash when he left the world of rowing, but went on to do wonderful things, um, which, again, most of us can only dream about. So well done, him. But the racing itself is where it gets interesting. Lewin. I mean, it, it does, but, I mean, again... It seems so nailed on. You know, you, you had basically triple world champion um, or three quarters of a triple world champion plus a man who had out-competed the, the fourth quarter of that. In the heat, in the semifinals, the GB boat was just imperious. It basically sat half a boat length ahead of the next fastest crew with some apparent ease and... They, they just let everyone else seem like they were fighting for second. Apparently yeah. the greatest threat, the Australians, um, the, there was a Kiwi boat that had sort of like in their, their one bad year um, had done very well, but the Kiwi boat was underperforming massively. The Australians, who were meant to be the big threat, only sneaked into the final by with an absolutely desperate final sprint in the semi-final to take them from fifth into second. But again, they were two seconds behind the GB boat. They were just sitting there and just like, you can't touch us. Um, yeah. We're going we're gonna to take this away from you at about 700 meters. We're going to put in a push to halfway and then we're just going to sit there. And then we had the final and the final just tore the script up and threw it out the window and it just seemed like, what's happened to the British? Where, where has that imperiousness gone? 
And I think, to be honest, they might have managed to really irritate a lot of crews in that field with the way that they they won. I, I, it went from being a done deal at the start of the race by 500 to 1,000 meters, it looked like anybody's race. The, the, Aussies were, the Aussies had a bit of a push on, but it was maybe half the length as you went through halfway. But by 1,500 meters, this was sewn up and GB was in a fight to the death for silver. Um, yeah. And at that point, between about 1,400 meters and 1,600 meters, I'd given up on them. I'm prepared to admit that. You know, um, that that's, that's a terrible admission, but Martin Cross had given up on them and he'd given up on them actually, you know, on camera, he'd actually said, I, I don't think they've got this. I think this is the Australian's race. And it yeah. absolutely looked that way. GB were fighting with Slovenia for silver. Yeah. It, it wasn't the way it was meant to be. And then 1,600 metres kicked in and everything started to change. And, and this just, it wasn't meant to be this way. This wasn't what the British were good at. The British, they, they went out hard they and they had it sewn up by 1500 meters and it just wasn't like that and suddenly they had 400 meters to turn a boat a boat length around against an australian four and australian fours have a reputation for being not shonky and they just started going for it and there, there was this, there was this look over the shoulder from Andrew Triggs Hogg, and he went. He took five strokes, looked over his shoulder. The Aussies are still in front of us, and he went again, and he went five strokes, looked over his shoulder, and then he went again, and he didn't have to look over his shoulder again. And just suddenly, it, it's not this sudden process, but suddenly. At around about 1,750 metres, the, the, the wheel's coming off the Australian boat. The British boat is flying. You look at it, and they must have been screaming. It must be agony. But it's technically perfect rowing at 41 strokes a minute. Everything is together. The shoulders are moving together. The hips are moving together. The hands and the blades, it's all in. It's bang, 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 bang. 41 strokes a minute. And they just pushed away. And people were saying, oh, wh where did that come from? They, these aren't the guys with the great sprint finish. They did have a good sprint finish, and they gave it in right there. And to be honest, this was the most physically and technically awesome last 250 metres since certainly the French pair in Sydney. And it possibly, you know, it's the spirit of, of the Searle brothers in Barcelona. We're, we're, we're nowhere, and then we're in gold. But what they had to do to do that, it was beautiful. I mean, it was elastic, flowing. It was a surge that just kept surging. It was an out-of-the-seat moment. Oh, my God, they're not... Oh, my God, they're going, they're going, they're going, they're going, they're going. <gasps> They've got it. They've actually Amazing. got it, and against yeah. all odds. And, God, if, if, I, if I knew how to row like that, that 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 was just you know that was just awesome. It was um, a fantastic row, brilliant finish, best of the finishers. Do you think? 
Certainly I mean, better than finishes. I mean, it was, it was certainly the best last 300, 400 metres. Yeah. But, you know, I will, you know, I will props to the Aussies. Yeah. You know, they, they, were, they, were not, they were not the top boat. They were not, they were not the favoured boat. They had just squeaked into the final on a last desperate gasp. They went out and they rode like Corinthian championship. And they were brave. They were defiant. They dared everyone else yeah. in that race to try and chase them. And it almost worked. It almost worked. The result yeah. went the wrong way for them. But for five minutes, that was, they rode like champions. They said, I don't care what, you know, you have to beat us. If you You've got to win this, it. You have to take it from us. And Britain yeah. did win it, again, for that reason, because of the absolute awesomeness of the Australians in that race. I can't say that this was the greatest Coxwell victory for me. Which leads us on to London and a home games at long last for the first time since just after the Second World War. And who cares that the cost spiraled from £2 billion to £9 billion? Who cares that the idea that all of this money would produce a legacy of sporting involvement largely by people saying that it would rather than by any actual visible strategy and one that proved to be a lie, seeing as we now have a childhood and adult obesity problem to rival any in the Western world and our average daily exercise levels are terrible. Who cares about that? We've spent a fortune. We have a home games in London. On the face of it, it's like Athens all over again, but it wasn't. I think it's massively different to Athens. And I also think this is why Pete Reed and Andy Trigshog are some of my favorite characters from this whole narrative. They, they really are exceptional people. And this is why in 2009, they got beaten four or five times in international races by the Kiwi pair. In the 2010 season, they won trials. They were the dominant sweep all rowers in British rowing, and they chose to go back in the pair. And in 2010, they got beaten four or five, possibly even six times, depending on how many times the Kiwis went to the World Cup in international races, including Henley by the Kiwi pair. And in 2011, they went to British trials, they were the dominant rowers, and they chose to go back in the pair, and they chose to keep fighting the Kiwi pair. And I'm gonna say they made the Kiwi pair great. They kept on trying to beat them. It wasn't, oh, we're dominant, we're brilliant, we're brilliant. Oh, we get one set back, and then we run away to the four. They did everything they humanly could to be the best rows that they could be and the only thing getting away were a couple of like tasty blondes from Kiwiland. I, I think that that is one of the most admirable three years in British rowing to choose, to physically choose. We are going after the greatest yeah. rowers who have ever sat in a boat and we're going to fight. We're going to fight gonna for fight. this. They didn't give up, and in the end, I kind of get the feeling they had to be dragged away. If you'd given them the choice, they'd have gone to 2012 in the pair and tried to beat the Kiwi pair. Yeah, um, and I think, I think that their characters and attitudes are such that they would have fancied it. To this day, if 
Andy Triggs-Carl and Pete Reed hadn't pushed them so hard in those three years, if they hadn't tried everything they possibly could of to win in, you could have always gone away and say, oh, well, you know, there, there was just a mythos around them and all the good rowers yeah. just like ran away, you know, and they were challenged again and again and again. And they were challenged by brilliant athletes who kept them honest. They come um, to London and they've London. been dragged out. They've been dragged out of the pair. They've been put back in the four and they are rowing with... Alex Gregory, who is, he's basically so decent and so nice. I've never really been able to have a go at him, but he's just like this absolutely monumental figure because he's also quite famous and he's written a children's book and he's like, he's this far from like being a television presenter and all the, all these things that basically mean you have to rip the Michael out of them. But I just don't feel like it. I just think he's a really nice bloke and an incredibly good athlete. And Tom James again, I believe. And Tom James. So it it was a very, it was a very kind of um, consistent boat. It was a, it was a good four, but here's the backdrop for all the money spent, 9 billion pounds, still a lot of money in today's terms for all the hoopla, for all the closing down of central London, for all of the corporate junket packages that were sold for all of the opening ceremony, one nation, wonderful history and all of the rest of it for seven days. If I'm not much mistaken, we have won not a lot. Have we won anything? I don't think we have. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't started to own our own home games. Step forward. Who else? James Cracknell. Don't worry, the rowers are coming. It's being James Cracknell, isn't it? He exudes confidence in the same way that an apex predator exudes apexness. It's basically, don't worry, calm down, we've got this. This is is on the Saturday, start of the finals, start of what became Super Saturday. Don't worry, the rowers are coming. And boy, did we come, did we deliver. And the row itself, I mean, we cannot forget Catherine Granger finally getting her gold. We've got Sachin Nash getting the bronze after the French. And then we've got the Coxless Fours final. We have this legacy going back to Sydney. We have this home games. We have Don't Worry the Rowers Are Coming. And what a row. I mean, what a row. It was just imperious. It was. It, was. it should have been nail biting. It should have been dramatic but it was just this stately procession down 2000 meters at slightly more than 35 strokes a minute and they just the whole way through they just looked calm they just looked we've got this and the australians were for a long part of the race they were with them they were right next door to them and but if you look at the close shots, if you look at the video again, you look at the faces of the British rowers, and then you look at the faces of the Australian rowers, the Australians look like they're dying. They look like they're on the ragged edge, and the British boat is just like, yeah, we've got this. Through that whole race, there was no point, there was not a single point when anybody in the field went faster than the British boat for more than 50 metres. At every single point, it was, it was them and the Australians side by side. And 
in the last 700 meters, it was this mythical idea that rowing coaches talk about that if you just go two inches per stroke further than the other crew and you take the same number of strokes with them, you're going to win by and present your number of inches. And, and that's what happened in the, in the last 700 meters. They just eased it out and ease it out and everything the Australians tried to do, the British did a bit better. It was a totally dominant performance. This was, we're on this, we've got this from about 50 meters in. You know, the start sequence happened and then it was their race. And I thought that was brilliant, frankly. It was brilliant. To do it, to do it under that level of pressure and expectation, to do it so well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a last stand heroics. It wasn't victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. It was just a beautiful, beautiful performance. There's no other way it to was. put it. But I think we should be, we should go on to Rio. It was a pretty tasty win. Well, to, to a certain extent, it was, it was a carbon copy in its dominance and. I don't know what it was. I think by this point, people had possibly, you know, stopped trying to beat the, the GB4. It was a fantastic row. They, they put this shove on with about a thousand to go, and that was it. They, they broke the rest of the field. The Australians tried to go with them, but they just never had, they were never even close after that. They, they dropped people, they dropped everyone at about a thousand to go, other than the Australians who they dropped by half a length and it stayed half a length to the line. It was totally dominant. But, but there's this thing, it just didn't have the same grab on the public imagination. I think almost there was just this expectation, oh yeah, this is just it's the house band playing the old favorites again. You know, even though this was a totally new set of characters, I just don't think other than Mo Sabihi, these guys grabbed the public attention. They weren't really those characters again. Yeah. I mean, you've got Constantine Leludis, you've got Mo, you've got, you know, you've got these big fantastic units who are rolling together beautifully but there's not the same grab or they're not firing the public imagination quite as much. I mean, you don't ever want, we're going to come on to when we wrap this up about the idea of medal fatigue. Um, but it, it is almost that sense of the expectation now on British rowers is, is immense because of the legacy of success. And it was a dominant performance, but we had the eight, which was a fantastic performance as well. We had the women's eight taking silver with a surge that was beautifully judged you know, I would kill to be that good. I would. I wouldn't. Obviously, if any legal professionals are listening to this, I wouldn't do that. It's a figure of speech. But to have to be that good must be a wonderful thing. I, th- I think at this point, it, it's fairly fairly clear which one I feel is the best. Which is, I'm just going to come out and say it. it's London 2012. Um, it was absolutely dominant because it had none of the kind of the nail biting drama of the other other ones, I think it was the best row. The, the greatest narrative sweep behind it in terms of the struggles that Triggs, Hulk and Reed had with the, um, 
Kiwi pear, and they were finally being able to come good in a different boat class. And so for me, London 2012 was the greatest row that we've really ever put together. We have to just restate, that's the criteria that we're judging on. What's the actual best row? And I think that's really important. It's very interesting that there's at least one member of the preceding Olympiad or the preceding Olympic boat then raced in the following Olympic crew. So there's kind of a, a DNA and a, a legacy of success there. The thing about the London performance was, was, was this. It was an absolute masterpiece of controlled competitive rowing. Yeah. It was delivered on the day that it was needed under massive pressure after not the best buildup in front of a home crowd that wasn't just demanding, but expecting. We've won nothing yet. That was the first seven days of, of London, of the, of the home Olympics. James Cracknell, don't worry, the rowers are coming. Bang. The thing is, and I've done this because I'm sad, if you freeze frame the Sydney four in the last 300 metres, or you freeze frame the Athens four in the last 300 metres, it looks a little bit like demonstrating different aspects of the stroke. There's a huge amount of work going in. They're committed. They're rowing on a, on a technical level that I can only dream at. But some people are in and some people are out and some people are halfway through their stroke and some people are three quarters of the way through their stroke. If you watch the London performance from start to finish, it's just beautiful. If you stop it at any point, they're all at the same point in the stroke. The rhythm and the flow and the elasticity is just glorious to watch and I actually I talked about it with Peter Holmes uh, brother of the late Andy immediately afterwards and we've uh, Terence one of our guests who's in episode five talks about learning the GB standard and Peter always said that if you put decent rowers in a boat together they will figure out the most efficient way to move the boat and if you look at the arcs that they're pulling in the London final it's not purely a GB style with that long, heavy sweep. It's somewhere between a GB style and a Spracklin style. They've found the most efficient way to move the boat. And it's beautiful to watch. It's absolutely beautiful. It is absolutely. It's fantastic. For me, and I think for you, London 2012 was the best of the five. Um, for its, you know, its technical flawlessness, its total lack of drama, yeah. and it's capture of the public's imagination. Yeah. Redgrave gave us the legacy. The Redgrave 4 gave us the legacy that we're so proud of. Athens gave us compelling hammer and tongs, knife fight drama. Beijing gave us an amazing finish. Um, Rio was dominant. It was a dominant, brutal performance. But London was, was special, I think. The reason why we bring this up is because uh, TGB put put the tweet up that um, one of us might have been me responded to and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna bring it up for us to wrap up with now the, the tweet from team GB was so dominant in the Coxless fours for 20 years that one medal wasn't enough so here's five Sydney 2000 Athens 2004 Beijing 2008 London 2012 Rio 2016 and the tagline was same country different rowers same result now, I'm not quite sure how you feel about this, Loon, but I think this is quite triumphalist and somewhat hubristic. And here's why. Everything is fine until the moment that it's not. We've raised the point that some of those wins could have been losses. Yes, we got the win, you know, and it, it's, it's fantastic. But we are, as we get into this podcast and we, we get into our fourth and fifth episode, we are looking at issues of athlete welfare, 
of how coaching programs are, are won, about what the point of sport is, about the, the, the GB Olympic program. There have been issues around athletics that have led to high-profile resignations because of doping issues and high-profile athletes working with known dopers. We have got issues in British cycling that seem like they've been rumbling on forever. We have got British gymnasts now coming out talking about a culture of abuse and, and, and being made to feel like pieces of meat in the pursuit of medals. I'm not suggesting that there's something rotten in the state of Denmark, but it's a basic Shelley Ozymandias point. Back when they, when they were celebrating the British Empire at the end of Queen Victoria's reign, Rudyard Kipling, who, is, who was the, the, the writer of empire, who, you know, he's an imperialist and he's a racist and he's, he is very, very dubious in the modern world. But when everybody else was going bananas about how big the British Empire was and how successful the British Empire was and how powerful and how wonderful and not since Rome have we seen the glory and the like, he wrote a poem called Recessional which pointed out that everything always seems great when you're winning, right up to the point when you aren't anymore, and the empire then melts away. Now, the fact remains that the winning streak that was tweeted stretches back to 1984, goes beyond Sydney. It's a wonderful achievement. It will not go on forever. It needs hard work. It needs dedication. It needs constant improvement. It needs talent to come through, and it needs luck. Ask James Cracknell if he felt lucky when he was injured out of Barcelona and he was injured out of Atlanta. Ask Steve Redgrave if he felt lucky when he was diagnosed with diabetes and he thought that his career was over. Ask Tim Foster if he felt lucky when he couldn't move after back surgery for months or Kath Granger when she's clearly the dominant athlete but she keeps getting silver. The culture surrounding British athletics is becoming a hot topic. Should we really be banging the drum and being so triumphal about a trajectory that's brought us all of the issues that I've just raised about doping in athletics, concerns about athlete welfare, concerns about, about British cycling, racism issues in hockey, abuse issues in British, in British ad, ad, uh, gymnastics, athletes going on record as saying they're scared to speak out because they don't trust that the structures that are put in place to safeguard them will actually safeguard them. They'll actually just safeguard those structures. I have young children, you have young children. I want them to en enjoy sport like I have. We're built to move, we're built to be active, we're built to be physical, and I know that not everyone can win a gold medal. We can win our own, our own gold medals by participation. But that sporting culture seems like something that we maybe need to examine. I'm not down on British rowing. I hope our streak continues. I love the sport. I love the practice and the art of rowing. I love the people that I've met along the way, the experiences that I've had I will never, ever forget. But when we're up on our, our high horse is usually the point right before we fall flat on our asses. So let's not tempt fate here. Let's not tempt fate. Everything's great until the point where it isn't. I'd agree. Um, I'm going to say off the cuff, I'm, uh, whenever anybody some brings up issues like this, I have a tendency to sort of be defensive and flippant. And so I was trying not to do that. But off the cuff, I think we are better than many of those sports that you've mentioned. I think we don't have the questionable history that cycling has, but I do not think we're in the same position as, uh, let's say, gymnastics, um, 
I don't think we have these these kind of very dubious characters swirling around in the mix in the way that you do in athletics. Um, I would say that triumphalism is very dangerous. Nostalgia is fine in sport, but triumphalism and expectations of winning are very, very dangerous. And, you know, you ask those Australian crews, you ask, you know, the Australian crew from Beijing, the Canadian crew from um, Athens, you know, I, I suppose we've been a little bit harsh on them, but the Australian crew from London, they weren't afraid of the British, British boat. They knew that they were great in their own right and they were there to win. And that's going to be absolutely true. There, there are going to be no easy races at the Olympics. People know that if you're not British and you win the Coxless Fours final at the Olympics, that victory will be all the sweeter for breaking this streak. And the issues that we've identified with regards to the culture of coaching and athlete and um, athlete welfare are issues that we would really we're really looking forward to talking about with people like Tristan and also Kath Bishop and others involved in the, in the sport. And I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Thank you very much for listening to episode four. Indeed. And uh, we shall see you next time. We are bi-weekly, which uh, I've just learned doesn't mean twice a week. Apparently it means once every fortnight, but that's the language gap between the North and the South for you. Thanks for listening. Tweet us your comments. I will say something flippant and Lewin will answer them seriously. I'll do my best. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye for now. Bye.